This episode of Geeks Guide to the Galaxy is made possible thanks to support from listeners like you. So if you enjoyed the show and want it to continue, please sign up to give us a dollar or two per episode over at patreon.com slash geeks. And if you'd rather make a one-time contribution, you can do that via check or PayPal over at geeksguideshow.com slash crowdfunding. And so I want to give a special thank you to B. Hartley and Reed Ryan, who both just signed up this week to support us on Patreon, and to Ruralution, who just made a one-time contribution to the show via PayPal. So big thanks again to everyone who's contributed. We really appreciate it. All right, so now let's get to our show. Wired.com presents The Geek's Guide to the Galaxy. And here is your host, David Barr Kirtley. Hello, and welcome to episode 420 of Geek's Guide to the Galaxy. Our guest today is Christopher J. Ferguson. He's a professor of psychology at Stetson University, and his articles have appeared in the New York Times, the New York Daily News, and the Houston Chronicle. He's also the author of the mystery novel Suicide Kings, and his short fiction has appeared in magazines such as Aphelion and Dance Macabre. And we'll be speaking with him today about his nonfiction books, Moral Combat, Why the War on Violent Video Games is Wrong, which he wrote with Patrick M. Markey, and How Madness Shaped History, an eccentric array of maniacal rulers, raving narcissists, and psychotic visionaries. And now here's our interview with Christopher J. Ferguson. All right, so we're here with Christopher J. Ferguson. Welcome to the show. Well, thanks for having me on today. It's a pleasure. Okay, so before we get to your two nonfiction books, I saw on your website that you also write science fiction so could you just give us a quick overview of what sort of science fiction you've written? I, tr- I try to write science fiction at any <laughs> rate. So it's, it's up for the reader to decide if it's any good. Um, yeah, I'm interested in speculative fiction of all sorts. So I kind of like, you know, dark theme stuff, everything from horror to, uh, to science fiction. I do a little bit of mystery. I actually have a mystery novel out there uh, called Suicide Kings. It's set in 15th century Florence. Um, but... Uh, yeah, I like things that kind of explore the dark side of humanity. I think probably my interest in psychology is uh, overlapping with my uh, interest in writing fiction uh, a little bit there. But uh, yeah, people can go on my website and read some of the short stories I published uh, for free. Uh, most of them, at least, are for free. Uh, so are there any of those stories in particular you think would be a good introduction to your work? Oh, they're all wonderful. Which <laughs> which of my children do I love the most? You know, I, <laughs> you know, I, 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 I don't know. I, th- I think um, there was one called uh, Fortunatus um, that was published a few years ago that is sort of science fiction-y, but it's got a little bit of a darker horror sort of theme to it uh, as well. Uh, I think that would probably be a good one for people to start with. It's not too, too long. And uh, I think it's pretty captivating. I liked it. Um, so <laughs> hopefully other people will too. Do um, do any of those – you mentioned that the psychology kind of intersects with the science fiction. Did any of those stories really in, involve psychology in any um, direct way? Well, I mean, I think they all do to, to some extent. I mean, my background in psychology has been in forensic psychology as well as doing a lot of sort of media effects stuff. So I've, you know, I've worked with criminals. I've worked with inmates. Um, worked with people in the juvenile justice system. And, um, you know, I think that has helped perhaps, again, sort of help me see, like, what the dark side of humanity looks like, but also kind of wrap that into, you know, if you look at people that are in the criminal justice system, they're still people, you know, they're, and they have a lot of, they have good sides, you know, and stuff. And so kind of what interests me is how sometimes 
people that have good traits have you know have good sides can still do dark things or still get themselves involved in uh, dark and unpleasant things and uh, kind of exploring that side of uh, the human condition. Yeah. So if you've been writing fiction your whole life, or did you start at a particular time? Right from kindergarten. I was writing fiction. <laughs> uh, no, I think I always had an interest in doing something creative. I mean, it's always kind of the sense of uh, psychology is kind of like my day job, you know. And uh, and that's been everything from wanting to be like the next lead guitarist from, for Pink Floyd. I'm still waiting for David Gilmore <laughs> to die. Um, you know, all the way through, you know, writing fiction or at least writing books. I enjoy writing nonfiction as well. Um, so, but I don't think I got at all good at it until I, I was at least in my thirties. So I, I think if I went back and read stuff that I tried to write, you know, God forbid in my teens and certain, and even in my twenties, um, I don't think I would be terribly proud <laughs> of what I tried to do, uh, back then. I was also very lazy in my twenties, so I never really, uh, I, I think that was like a lost decade <laughs> for me <laughs> to some extent. Um, so I really didn't get very serious about writing until I was at least in my thirties, and, uh, that's when I started having a little bit of success. Um, I, I haven't built up my Stephen King-like empire yet, but, yeah. uh, working on it, slow but sure. Are there any particular authors that had a big impact on you or that you, uh, like influenced your work in a significant way? Yeah, I mean, I think, you know, going back to when I was, you know, a teenager and reading books, I, I read a lot of horror. So, you know, of course, Stephen King being among them, Peter Straub, uh, Dean Koontz, who's a little bit more pulpy um, than uh, than some of the others. But those were kind of the, the books I gravitated towards. Maybe some, like, mystery adventure stuff, like, by Mark Frost and, and other individuals. But I, I generally gravitated towards kind of you know, dark stuff that was also kind of, kind of deep, you know, in a way, and it kind of had meaning. Like, it's kind of like, you know, the, the movie equivalent might be something like Blade Runner, you know, that, you know, kind of has a sort of dark dystopian vision, but also it's trying to say a lot about sort of humanity and the human condition and, and what it means to be human, um, you know, and all that kind of stuff. Uh, although, ironically, I, I've read some of, uh, Philip K. Dick's stuff and, uh, you know, which Blade Runner is based off of. I don't enjoy his writing, uh, very much, but, uh, the, uh, you know, Do Androids Dream of Electric Sheep? was really a chaotic book to read, but the movie that was based on a Blade Runner was, uh, you know, absolutely fantastic. So I like movies based on Philip K. Dick novels, but I don't like reading Philip K. Dick novels, if that makes any sense. <laughs> yeah, well, so how about in the book you mentioned that you grew up kind of at the height of arcades and you spent a lot of time in video arcades. Do you have any um, any memories that stand out from that period? Oh, yeah. That was like back in the 80s. If you were like a nerd, you know, or a geek, that was kind of like the thing you did on Friday night and, and Saturday. And I, you know, probably uh, younger people today can't relate to yeah, to that. But, you know, we'd all get our like $20 bills and run down to the arcade and just turn that all into quarters and uh, feed these machines with quarters, you know, until we ran out, you know, basically. Uh, it was just a great, you know, bonding experience between, you know, uh, friends that were interested in that sort of thing. And, uh, you know, it was it was amazing because you could see, like, the technology increasing fairly rapidly, you know, across that period. We went from, like, Space Invaders to Berserk and then to these kind of, like, you know, light gun games. Um, and stuff like that. So it was just a great spot, you know, before consoles were widely available. Uh, and we had the Atari 2600, but, you know, before like really good consoles were uh, available, it was just a great spot to go and play these, like, you know, what, for the time period with these like ultra modern games and, and hang out socially. 
and like pretend we were cool, but you know, <laughs> we were not, but you know, they sort of seemed cool, you know, um, you know, at the time. But, uh, yeah, so it's really like this cultural moment that is totally lost, right? Maybe we don't have things like that. Uh, anymore. The closest is like Chuck E. Cheese or Dave and Buster's or, you know, those sorts of things. But it's just not the same anymore. Yeah. Well, and you said also that you were into Dungeons and Dragons. And I've talked before on this show about how the, the moral panic around D&D and the moral panic around Doom, which was my favorite game at the time, really shaped my, um, you know, my adolescence and my, uh, uh, outlook and stuff like that. And I was just curious if, if those moral panics ever affected you, um, directly growing up. Oh, absolutely. Yeah. So the Dungeons and Dragons moral panic was, was, uh, you know, in full swing when I was a preteen and, and teenager. And, uh, all the idea, mostly coming at that point from sort of like the right, you know, the sort of social conservative, Christian conservative movement that, uh, Dungeons and Dragons was going to lead kids into Satanism, of course, but also, you know, suicide and murder and schizophrenia. I remember the Tom Hanks movie, Mazes and Monsters came out, you know, in the eighties. It was a good movie, actually, for, <laughs> for an eighties movie, but of course it was based on an entirely ridiculous premise. But, um, you know, so people were like, you know, and I remember like my mom would like, you know, see news article or, or, or see news shows that would, you know, heighten the sort of panic around Dungeons and Dragons. And he's really like, earnest TV specials on like 60 minutes and stuff like that, that really took this idea of like Dungeons and Dragons and suicide, you know, super, super seriously. And, uh, you know, around the same time, there were issues over, I mean, there were issues over video games going back that far too. And, but also like rock music and then rap music, uh, were in the spotlight, uh, at the same time. So, yeah, I mean, I kind of remember, and I think maybe more than, it seems like to me, at least, that many adults do. I can really remember going through these kind of media moral panics as a preteen and teenager and, you know, kind of having that observation of what it's like to be a teen, you know, and hearing people say these things about the culture you enjoy that just sound ridiculous. Um, and I, I think to the extent that I've been able to kind of hold on to those memories, that has sort of made me a bit more alert to when people do it today with new media, new technology, uh, and things like that. And, and for some reason, it seems difficult for a lot of people to remember back to when they were teenagers and when people used to complain about rock music or Dungeons and Dragons or, you know, whatever the, uh, the moral panic of the, of the day happened to be, um, and then apply it to, am I doing the same thing to my kids and the entertainment they, they enjoy? And, uh, and in most situations, yeah, the answer is yes. <laughs> you, know, the, you know, that there's not, there's not compelling evidence to suggest that, you know, fictional media has really, you know, any major demonstrative negative effect on, on people, even if it's sort of naughty. You know, people always are looking for media that looks naughty, um, in, uh, in some ways. So, uh, you know, today more of the panics are over things like 13 Reasons Why. Of course, we still have the video game stuff. You know, people are, are concerned about social media, um, and things like that. And, you know, for the most part, these, these sort of concerns about modern technology, modern media look a lot like what these moral panics look like, you know, back 30, 40 years ago. Oh, well, and of course they go back through time, you know, through history, but, uh, you know, in my lifetime, 30, 40 years ago. Um, so it's a lot of the same stuff being repeated, you know, over and over again. Uh, you know, much of it comes from sort of the political right. Some of it does come from the political left, um, as well. But, um, you know, in general, we, we'd be suspicious of people that are, you know, sort of like saving children, uh, by trying to restrict people's access to fictional media. It, uh, it usually doesn't work out very well. 
uh, in the end in terms of how the data looks. Well, well speaking of ridiculous stuff, I, I you know, I had heard, of course, of the Satanic Panic uh, McMartin preschool case, but I didn't mm-hmm. realize this is from the book. I didn't realize this. You say um, many of the allegations were decidedly bizarre and included reports of secret tunnels under the preschool that some of the abusers could fly of orgies held at airports and even then action star Chuck Norris was one of the abusers. Yeah, you, you, would, you would think that people would have been a little more suspicious of that. Yeah, well, I mean, I think one of the things that we see coming out of, you know, moral panics, uh, I mean, they're always easy to look back at and, and almost laugh. Like, you know, it's important to point out with, with you know, the satanic panics of the, the late 80s and early 90s that, that people really got destroyed, you know, by these. You kind of think like, oh, this, this is ridiculous. Certainly police didn't take this seriously, but they did, you know, and, you know, some people went to jail and really had their, their, their lives just, just shattered. Um, because of some of these accusations that, you know, were made. And it's the same thing. We could kind of look back at, you know, the Dungeons and Dragons panic and, you know, the U.S. Congress had this list of filthy 15 songs and they included stuff like Prince and Cindy Lauper. You know, I mean, kind of look back and go, Oh my God, like this is like the girls just want to have fun, you know, <laughs> musician, you know, so they actually thought this was like ruining society and, and at the time, people took it very seriously. Again, these were all like you know very earnest concerns that uh, well, people. We, had. we all know that "Wanna Have Fun" is really just code for worship Satan. I mean. <laughs> <laughs> well, it's actually it was her song "Shebop," which which actually is a, a masturbation reference. The whole song is about basically everybody masturbates, which you know is probably technically pretty accurate. But you know, back in the uh, '80s, you know these you know, people in Congress and and you know uh, Tipper Gore, uh, you know Al Gore's wife, who was heading this parents media research council or resource council i forget what the r stands for uh but uh you know really we're kind of thinking like cindy lopper was going to like send teens running around masturbating in the streets or something like that you know and uh you know it's kind of like yeah you know kids didn't need cindy lopper to do that you know uh, but that, but people again sort of took this kind of thing seriously this, this is kind of like this the spun glass theory what some people refer to it the idea that kids are made out of spun glass and if they're exposed to anything, you know, remotely naughty or negative, that's going to like shatter them, you know, and their, their brains or their psyches or their personalities are going to be irretrievably damaged. Um, and, and again, it's easy to kind of look back as we kind of get used to technology, as we get used to media and, uh, we can look back and think that these are these are kind of stupid, but we do it again anyway. You know, whatever the new thing that's out, we uh, you know we're now worried about thirteen reasons why. We're worried about smartphones causing suicide and you know similar sorts of things. And these look a lot like you know the panics we had back thirty forty years ago. Well, it seems like I mean a lot of the problem was just that the people even in Congress didn't actually play the games. And so they really just had wildly inaccurate ideas of what they were. So like you talk about night trap. And you mm-hmm. say that um, it, during the congressional testimony, it was claimed that it, the player in Night Trap was murdering women, which is not true. You're trying to save the women. And right. that once you murdered them, they were hung up on meat hooks and their blood was drained into wine bottles, which is just mm-hmm. completely made up. Which is, It's like an oddly <laughs> specific thing to have just been completely dreamed up by somebody. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, a, a lot of you know concerns about media are also related to sort of what people imagine the the stuff stands for as opposed to what it actually does. I mean, you can take like, you know, the, the Grand Theft Auto series, which which is certainly for adults. I mean, it certainly has, 
you know, content in it that most people probably wouldn't want their seven year old, you know, being exposed to. So I don't want to, you know, minimize the content of, of, of Grand Theft Auto, but, you know, I, I've had, you know, parents ask me about it and say that they read online that there's like necrophilia and rape and child sexual abuse in the game. And they're like, ah, think about it for a second. What, how, what would the size of the audience be for a game that involves, you know, child sexual abuse? I mean, I'm optimistic to think that it would be pretty small, you know, so, so this is probably not something that you're going to see in a triple A game, you know, but people kind of read this stuff online and, you know, they haven't played the game. They haven't actually exposed themselves to, you know, the media in question. And it's easy for them to sort of imagine the worst possible things. It's kind of like the back in 2008, there was this kind of like panic over um, was it Mass Effect. Um, I think it was of the where it had like the. Uh, the sexual content in it, and people thought it was just like completely. Uh, I hope I'm not mangling the wrong game here, but no, no, you're you know, just right. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It was, it was uh, you know, my my memory is terrible. I'm getting old, <laughs> uh, but uh, you know, it, it was kind of this imagining this was like a fully pornographic game. It was like hardcore pornography in it, and it was on like Fox News, and you know, get a lot of get a lot of press. And if you actually play the game, which actually took you like 35 hours to get to the scene in question. <laughs> so it was, you know, in terms of like people trying to get like, you know, porn, pornographic kind of like edge off of this, it was really a lot of investment. <laughs> um, but you end up seeing like, you know, a, a woman's buttocks. And that's, that's basically it, you know, cartoon, you know, sort of graphics version of a, of a woman's backside. And that was the extent of it, you know. So that is a common thing with like a lot of moral panics is like the actual sort of concern gets hyped up to an unreasonable degree. And if you actually look at the meeting question, in many cases, it's at least not as bad as what people are are claiming. You might still say, like, you know, I don't want my kid to listen to ACDC or I don't want my kid to play Grand Theft Auto V. And that's that's fine, obviously. Um, but uh, that's different from, you know, the idea that my kid's going to run out and commit suicide or start worshiping Satan or shoot police officers or something of that sort because they've been exposed, you know, to this particular uh, medium. So, yeah, I mean, I mean, moral panics generally tend to feed off of, you know, lack of familiarity with the media in question. That's why this oftentimes is very generational sort of element to moral panics. Um, and then also emotion, you know, they tend to be, it's fear, you know, it, it's, it's fear-based stuff. Um, and that can sometimes make moral panics kind of difficult um, you know, to challenge because as human beings, we tend to be more emotional thinkers. Um, and that can make people resistant to information that might challenge their particular emotional perspective uh, on something. Yeah, well, I mean, and I've always played a lot of violent video games and been, been a big fan of violent video games. And so I'm pretty skeptical of this idea that they're that terrible. But even so, reading your book, I was surprised at how um strong the evidence was that they're they're actually good or you know not harmful um and so this this fact that um you know about 70% of boys today play violent video games and only about 20% of school shooters play violent video games that just kind of floored me i i was not expecting that yeah and that, and you can you can see very similar numbers even if you kind of control for you know shooters who you know were f far enough back in time that you wouldn't expect you know shooters from the 70s get rid of them you know take them out of the equation you still see the same basic sort of numbers uh that that are involved it, it looks like if if anything you know and it's not to say that you know playing violent video games is necessarily reducing people's aggression or anything of that sort but but it's such a normative activity at this point that it almost appears like the people who 
don't engage, or at least the boys in this question, of course, lots of girls also enjoy playing action games, but uh, particularly for boys, you know, for boys that are not really engaged in playing video games uh, or even perhaps more aggressive games, it's so unusual. It may be almost like a little bit of a little red flag, you know, that there's something unusual. And it doesn't mean that every boy that doesn't enjoy Grand Theft Auto is, is has a problem, of course. Um, but it may be that they're, you know, where people play games socially a lot now that maybe they're having some difficulties with socialization or maybe they're obsessing over something else. Um, you know, a lot of these, uh, individuals who are mass shooters spend a lot of time, you know, with their own diaries and writings and manifestos, for instance. Um, so sometimes, you know, not engaging in a fairly normative activity may be, uh, um, you know, a little bit of a warning sign. Again, I don't want people to, you know, totally freak out. My kid doesn't enjoy video games, therefore, you know, he's, you know, got mental health problems. No, that's not necessarily the case. But, you know, uh, there does seem to be something to this idea that, uh, at very least, that playing these types of games is such a normative activity. It's so just sort of normal for boys and some girls, you know, to be attracted to highly violent video games and highly violent movies and television. Um, that it doesn't distinguish very well between those who do have problems with aggression versus those that, you know, don't have problems with aggressions. And that's what we're seeing now is from, you know, even in the years since the book was published that, uh, you know, there have been more studies that have looked at sort of like long-term outcomes and does playing violent video games early in life predict aggression-related problems later in life? And the answer seems to be no, you know. And, and part of that is just that the activity itself is so ubiquitous that it's just not unusual at all for, you know, again, particularly boys, but also girls, uh, to be attracted to aggressive games like Grand Theft Auto or Call of Duty or, or, or things like that. Uh, so it's, it's just not a warning sign that parents need to be attentive to if your 13 or 14-year-old kid wants to play Grand Theft Auto. It doesn't mean you necessarily should let them, um, but if they're showing an interest in those games, it's, it's perfectly normal for a boy um, or a girl of those ages to be interested in those types of games. One thing that really jumped out at me from the book is you talk about going to the White House and being in this meeting with um, Joe Biden, and he mentions in passing that um, youth crime is is on an upswing. And you have to kind of raise your hand and <laughs> sort of tell him, like, that's actually not true. And that that really jumped out at me because, I mean, you know, like from around 1990, the um, number of boys playing violent video games has gone basically from 0% to 70%. And youth crime has gone from pretty much an all-time high to pretty much an all-time yeah. low. And it's really hard for me to understand how anyone would not really know that who's involved in politics. Uh, like, what, yeah. what do you make of that? Well, I, I mean, of course, I'm nervous if he becomes president. I hope he forgets that conversation because <laughs> I don't want to get audited. Uh, but, uh, no, seriously, uh, um, I mean, the impression I got when I was at the meeting is he had gotten that information from other people. And that's kind of what he had indicated. The other, other people he, or other groups that he had met with had provided that information to him. And, and I think that one of the things that I try, I'm trying to think of a delicate way of putting it, but it, the, one of the things that I, I come across is that people that are in certain, uh, like police officers, for instance, but this isn't limited to police officers, that when police officers talk about things about like what causes crime, 
they oftentimes don't really know what they're talking about. And, you, you, and, and the general public would think that they should because they're police officers, right? You know, so you'll see like, you know, example clips of these like typically older, you know, police officers talking about, you know, this kid did something wrong and we found that they played Grand Theft Auto. So clearly there's some link there. They don't know what they're talking about, you know, and, you know, and in fairness, you know, I don't mean to pick on police officers because you can say the same thing about a lot of particularly like older psychologists and psychiatrists that have made some of the similar types of mistakes, you know, in, in attribution, there just seems to be something about age, you know, or perhaps more appropriately lack of familiarity with video games that causes people to make faulty assumptions. But, but it is something that you do see a lot from, you know, prosecutors, law enforcement officers is this kind of comment that people are committing crimes younger and younger, you know, and I think that's what, uh, uh, Vice President Biden had heard from somebody. He never said exactly who uh, it was who had told him this. Uh, now, I've been hearing that statement, you know, in some form or another for as long as I've been alive and paying attention to the news, which probably started somewhere in my mid-teens. Uh, you know, so if this is, this is really, we're talking about, you know, 35 years of this message, at least in my lifetime, that I'm aware of. And if it were true, I mean, at this point, kids ought to be popping out of the womb you know, <laughs> with a gun in one hand and a cigarette in, in another. So I, I think it's that kind of it's almost like a trope, you know, this sort of idea that, you know, kids today are worse than they were in my generation, which humans are on record as saying for literally 2,500 years. So you can go back to the ancient Athenians in some of Plato's dialogues, the ancient Athenians were saying exactly the same thing. <laughs> so for some reason, old people tend to think that the youth of today are much worse um, than they were uh, in their generation. So I think that uh, Joe Biden uh, had gotten some version of that narrative from somebody. He never said who it was and repeated it. Uh, and, you know, to, to his chagrin, I actually had a graph <laughs> with me that I could hand around that showed exactly the opposites, you know. So in, in that situation, I actually kind of stopped him and informed him, um, that he was mistaken. Probably one of the most terrifying moments of my life. Um, and, uh, and happened to have this graph that sort of be- beautifully demonstrated this sort of massive decline in youth violence has happened since 1993. Um, you know, so I think, or perhaps I hope that, you know, that was something that was a bit insightful to him and, and may have reigned in him and the Obama administration's, you know, focus on video games in the aftermath of the Sandy Hook shooting in 2012. Well, right. And it, it seems like the media coverage is has been pretty poor on this because, you know, speaking of the Sandy Hook shooting, you know, you mentioned that, that, the, that Adam Lanza, it was re- widely reported in the media that he was obsessed with Call of Duty and violent video games like that. And it ultimately turns out that he played almost exclusively Dance Dance Revolution and Super Mario Brothers. Um, but I feel like everyone heard the initial reports and nobody hears the later corrections. And so, you know, that sort of sensationalism or, you know, irresponsible coverage initially is what what sets everyone's understanding of the situation yeah i mean absolutely so we, we and you know it took the uh, investigation about 11 months uh to wrap up uh before they re- released their official investigation report and in that 11 months there were all these speculations coming out so there would be all these sort of anonymous sources that were supposedly close to the investigation so you'd hear this so like you know a law enforcement officer close to the investigation says that 
they discover that Adam Lanza had played, you know, I don't know, I'll make up numbers, but, you know, tens of thousands of hours of online Call of Duty and racked up, you know, thousands of headshots and all these kind of, you know, I don't know what the exact numbers were, but it was kind of, that was kind of like the narrative that came out uh, a lot from this. And nobody knows who these, you know, supposed, you know, anonymous sources were that were supposedly close to the investigation. Um, because that's not what the investigation ultimately concluded. Um, and in fact, if you, uh, they, they, a month after they released the official report, they actually did what's called a document dump. So they actually publicly released like, like literally every piece of paperwork, uh, that had been filled out anywhere in the investigation. So like every single officer's report for every single witness and interact, you know, every, every, absolutely everything it was tens of thousands of, of pages, I believe. Um, and I did just like a little, like word, you know, video game, like word search through it all. And, and, and some of the, of the actual investigating officers, when they would interview the victim's families, they actually were, would specifically tell the families to stop paying attention to the video game. You know, actually, I think one officer called it hoax theories, um, basically. So the actual officers involved in the investigation apparently never were really that concerned about the video games. Uh, they were focusing on other stuff, uh, for the most part. But yeah, I mean, the, the news media just kind of took this narrative, and went with these anonymous sources who nobody knows who the heck those anonymous sources were because they're anonymous. Um, and just sort of drilled down on this narrative that ended up being absolutely untrue. And as you say, unfortunately, when the official investigation report came out, it got almost no news attention. So you still sometimes hear people talk about the Sandy Hook shooting, uh, or for that matter, Virginia Tech, uh, which also was not related to video games. Um, as if these were examples of young shooters who were avid gamers when uh, the, the, the investigation reports themselves said that they were not. Or at least in, in the case of the Sandy Hook shooter, if he was an avid gamer, it was for a nonviolent uh, video game that he was particularly uh, a fan of. Right. And so, I, you know, I've been following this a little bit, this this issue for years. And so I had heard about these things, these experiments that supposedly demonstrate a link between video games and aggression, where the, the basic methodology is that they'll have people come in and play a violent video game for 15 minutes and then see how much more basically rude they are. And it sounds like, you know, people will be made one to three percent more rude. Um, and it turns out, as you say in the book, even that's not true. But even taking all that at face value, it, it just seems like so obviously meaningless and I just have to wonder, the people running these experiments, do they not sort of not get at some level <laughs> that these are meaningless experiments that wouldn't prove anything anyway? Uh, I mean, obviously, I can't put myself in the heads of, of, of other people that, you know, so there, there certainly are within psychology people that sort of rigorously defend these um, analog experiments that happen in the lab. So, you know, for the, for the sake of your listeners, so to give you an example, you, you mentioned rudeness. I mean, really what we kind of do, and I, I've done these, some of these studies myself, in fairness, you know, as we have people come in, they play a game, you know, either nonviolent or a violent video game, and then we have them do what I would really call, like, prank level aggression. And we're really talking about, like, putting spicy you know, sauce into someone's sandwich when you know that they don't like spice, you know, and that kind of stuff. So, it's, you know, so it's, it's sort of like April Fool's level aggression, <laughs> you know, if you will. So it's not, you know, hitting or pushing or screaming at someone or anything of, of, of that sort. Um, you know, and, and these, these, these experiments can be interesting, but a lot of the, well, there's really two problems. I mean, one problem is, of course, that 
many scholars would do these experiments and then start talking about mass shootings, you know. So we went from, like, hot sauce to, you know, gun violence, you know, very rapidly. And, and you know, we might say, like, hey, it might be sort of interesting to know if people are a little bit more mischievous, you know, after playing a, a violent video game. But that's different from them, you know, engaging in, like, gang violence. Or, or something of that sort, and and that got that that largely got lost, I think, in a lot of the uh, way that the earlier violent video game literature was sold uh, to the public. And and I really, you know, obviously there were individual researchers who were responsible for that, but quite frankly, even our professional guilds like the American Psychological Association have a lot of culpability in misinforming the public about exactly what was happening, um, you know, in this, uh, you know, in this in this field. Um, so there was that, and there was also this issue that, you know, it looks like in a lot of these studies, the researchers really kind of injected their own opinions into the results, uh, and maybe purposely or maybe not purposely, we don't necessarily know. Uh, and this is a, this is a bigger problem throughout psychology. If some people may have heard of psychology's replication crisis, a lot of old studies are now turning out to be not true. Um, but what was happening is there really wasn't adequate standardization. There really wasn't adequate, like, transparency and controls in a lot of psychological research. So you would have psychological researchers in this field and in other fields, you know, run their statistics and then rerun their statistics and then re-rerun their statistics in multiple different ways until they would get the results that they wanted. Um, so as a consequence of that, a lot of the results were simply false. You know, they... They were what the experimenter wanted to see, not what was actually happening with the participants uh, in in the study. Now, there are ways of fixing that. There's something called pre-registration where scholars can publish their plans for collecting and analyzing data in advance so they can't monkey with it once they get their data. Um, and if we look at pre-register studies in this field, I think there's maybe 10 to 12, not very many, um, uh, pre-register studies Um Really, none of them find you know evidence for violent video game effects. I think maybe one of them found some inconsistencies. Uh, the rest all were uh, pretty clearly null studies. Uh, so if you look at sort of like the more standardized, more transparent, uh, better done studies, pretty much none of them have found any evidence so far, at least for there being a relationship between violent video game playing and uh, aggressiveness. Yeah. So I mean, I really found your book pretty persuasive and uh, just overwhelming in terms of disproving that uh, that hypothesis. What sort of um, did you get pushback on the book at all from people who continue to defend this uh, video games cause real world violence idea? Um, not too much on the book itself. I mean, I will say it is I mean, one of the ironies of aggression research is just how aggressive aggression <laughs> researchers are, right, in, in general. So, so there, there certainly is pushback, but I think, you know, a lot of the pushback predated the books, you know, so some of that, um, was already going on, uh, you know, and, uh, I, I'll be frank. I mean, some of it was, it was and has been quite nasty. They're very personal in, in some situations. And again, it's sort of weird to see that, you know, one about a field that maybe isn't, you know, it's not like, cancer research, right? I mean, it's not like maybe like super, super important, but, um, but also ironically of a field that at least ostensibly is concerned about aggression. You know what I mean? So, so you would think that, you know, maybe aggression researchers would mirror, you know, uh, collegiality or something if they really were concerned about aggression, but unfortunately they, they really don't. Um, well, maybe aggression research is the leading cause of mass shootings. 
<laughs> it could be. I, I mean, sometimes I think some of it's kind of joke that, you know, we're, we're not aggressive because we play a lot of violent video games. We're aggressive because we do a lot of violent video game research and have to interact with other <laughs> video game violence researchers. Uh, and so, so it's really people that make us aggressive, not, not technology. Uh, and it's probably something to be, uh, you know, said for that. The world would be uh, a lot more peaceful if it weren't for all the people <laughs> that were in it, ruining it. Um, but uh, but I think other than that, the other thing that's been kind of difficult is, you know, we, we have some professional organizations, like I said, the professional guilds, like the American Psychological Association, that unfortunately in the early days went way out on a limb uh, in terms of their reputations linking video games to aggressiveness and violence in society and things like that. And it's been a slow process to get them to walk back, you know, what I think are, are pretty misinformative public statements that these organizations have uh, have made. I mean, to their credit, the American Psychological Association has more recently begun, been clear in saying that violent video games are not linked to actual violent crimes, um, but they're trying to sort of hold on the line with, you know, milder aggression, which they don't define. Uh, which I think still confuses a lot of people, um, particularly given that the evidence isn't really there for mild aggression any more than it is for uh, violent, you know, violent crime. So, um, but I think that's also because, again, you know, what people have to understand is that organizations like the American Psychological Association are not science organizations; they're professional guilds. They're they're really marketing agencies, you know, for psychology. And, and in fairness, I'll say I'm I'm a I'm a fellow of the American Psychological Association, so you know, I, I have my own involvement with them. You know, even though I'm oftentimes very critical of them, uh, you know, so they basically are there to defend psychology, not tell you the truth, you know, in essence. And I think that's help may help the public understand why professional guilds like the American Psychological Association or American Psychiatric Association or American Medical Association sometimes get caught, you know, in these situations where they seem to either be confused or saying things that appear to be patently untrue. Um, and I think that's really kind of like the next challenge, you know, for us in this field is to help organizations like the American Psychological Association um, walk back some of their public statements uh, that are not correct uh, and are misinforming the public rather than helping them. One line in the book is you say, uh, the old adage, fear sells is true. Fear sells books, parentheses. We'll see how this one does since we're basically <laughs> telling you everything is okay. And I was just curious uh, how that played out. Did the book sell well and did it sell well compared to more um, sort of fear-mongering kinds of media? Oh, yeah. I, I, I write books all together the wrong way. Um, so, <laughs> I mean, the book is done okay, but, you know, it's certainly – there, there definitely is this. I mean, I, I have not bought my first Ferrari yet or anything <laughs> off of, you know, the, the proceeds of the book. Um, you know, so it's, it's a, you know, mod. I'm always happy when anybody's read it, you know. Uh, like I said, I'm not, I have not yet built up an empire like Stephen King or, or uh, Stephen Pinker or anybody like that, it's, you know. So. Yeah, there definitely is this kind of truism that you will sell books better by scaring the crap out of people or making young people look bad. That's another thing that seems to sell, you know, books about how terrible youth today are one way or another. 
Um, these are the kind of things that tend to sell better. You know, saying that everything's basically okay. Messages of optimism don't sell, uh, for the, for the most part. You know, uh, a book that basically says video games don't really do a lot. They don't make you aggressive. They don't increase your IQ. They don't cause cancer. You know, is, is a, a hard sell. Um, today. And it's the same thing if you kind of say, like, you know, kids today are basically okay. They've got some challenges, but they're less violent. They use drugs less. You know, they smoke less. Um, is a lot harder to sell to the public than, you know, here's why your kid is on the edge of doom, you know, and what you need to know. You know, that kind of thing sells books, you know, a, a lot better. Um, and that probably says something about human nature, right? We seem to be attracted to... Uh, darker negative messages to a, a greater degree. And every so often you hear people talk about news media the same way. Like, why doesn't the news ever report the good stuff that's happening in the world? It's simple. Nobody watches it. <laughs> this is a very clear answer there. You know, if people watched it, then that's what the news would do. Uh, but unfortunately, you know, news media like fictional media have to, um, you know, gravitate towards, um, what is salacious, you know, what is gory, you know, so fear sells, blood sells, negativity sells, and, um, you know, that's always been the case, you know, and it doesn't look like that's going to change anytime soon, I'm afraid. Well, I mean, like I was saying, like growing up experiencing these moral panics as a teenager, I think made me highly sensitized to not repeating that myself. But mm -hmm. I have to admit, I do find myself feeling like the kids these days have gone horribly wrong. Um, so I'd like to run a few things by you and maybe you can talk me down from this. Yeah. Um, but I, I do really worry about the impacts of social media and just sort of Internet culture in general. And I feel like, you know, when I was growing up with no Internet, I was reading all these books and watching all these TV shows and reading magazines and so on. And, and a lot of it was total crap, but at mm -hmm. least it was about people who weren't me, which made me have to think about people besides yeah. myself. Whereas I feel like so many young people now are just on social media all day and just posting their own thoughts and posting pictures about themselves and what they're doing and only interacting or largely interacting with people in their peer group and it's just sort of breeding this kind of narcissism that is unique to the era of smartphones and social media. Yeah, well, there's there's good news and bad news when it comes to social media. So um, the the good news, and this is a fairly new area of research, so there certainly is debate. You know, so again, you'll you'll see like the headlines that are like social media is like heroin, or social media is causing girls to commit suicide, and this kind of stuff. So there certainly are scholars that are debating this back and forth. I mean, my my read of the evidence is that if we're talking about things like social media changing people's mental health by mere exposure, I, I don't think the evidence there is, is much better than it was for video games or television or books or, or, or anything of that sort. You know, so sim simply being on Facebook or, or God forbid, Twitter, um, you know, the time spent in and of itself doesn't seem to be rotting kids' brains uh, or things like that. There's really no evidence, you know, that, you know, kids today are in most ways are worse off than they were in the past. Um, you know, teenage suicide rates have risen, you know, for, for girls in particular, but that's true for all age categories. So it's nothing unique to teenagers. In fact, the, the suicide rates are highest among middle-aged adults. And actually, the increase in suicide is highest among middle-aged adults. So there seems to be something kind of systematically happening in American society that's increasing suicide, not something specific to teenagers, which suggests that it's probably not social media in and of itself, at least, um, that is doing it. You know, so that's the, that's the good news is, is, is 
I, I, I don't think there's this kind of like mere exposure effect. Um, simply being on social media is causing harm. However, I mean, I, I, I do think social media does bring with it some challenges. I mean, and one practical one is, of course, all the privacy concerns that people have around social media. Um, but more than that, I mean, one thing, as I kind of made the joke earlier, and maybe it's not really a joke, is a sort of sense of like what does kind of make us have issues is other human beings, right? You know, it's really other people that sort of screw us up. Um, and with social media, you can come into contact with a much wider group of people who have no investment in you whatsoever, right? You know, and so that's where I think there's a lot of talk about how cruel social media can be. It's not the technology, it's the people um, that's on it. We can talk about things like cancel culture and bullying, cyberbullying and, and all kinds of other stuff that happen in, in, in these spaces. Um, and social media is also kind of dangerous in the sense that particularly with teenagers who may post things that are stupid – uh, that are offensive or whatever, those things can haunt them, you know, for the rest of their lives, you know, in, in some situations. And we know that, you know, teenagers say stupid stuff. Teenagers do stupid stuff. I mean, a lot of adults do as well, right? But, you know, we, we usually give teenagers a sort of a pass. You know, they're still maturing. They're developing empathy. Uh, they're trying to figure out the rules. But they now can post things on social media that 30 or 40 years ago, if they had said the same thing to their friends – you know, their friends might have talked back to them or something of that sort. It wouldn't have been a big deal. Now it's in cyberspace forever. It can, you know, haunt them eternally. And so there are some new dangers that come with uh, social media, particularly to the extent that it has evolved to be the sort of uncompromising, you know, cruel kind of bullying space. That's why I kind of made this reference to God forbid Twitter. I think Twitter is kind of particularly known. Um, you know, for uh, that sort of thing. And, and there also seems to be this sense of like hyperpolarization that occurs in uh, social media spaces. You know, so to the extent that, for instance, we seem to be experiencing greater polarization in our society more broadly, I don't think all of that or even the majority of that is necessarily due to social media, but I don't think social media is necessarily helping, um, you know, either. Um, and well, so you can get, yeah, go ahead. Well, it's just this thing that I, I feel like I see this sort of, um, sanctimonious certitude shading over very quickly into violent rhetoric. Like, mm -hmm. I don't remember when I was a teenager, anyone ever saying, I'm going to just punch someone if I disagree with their political views, or mm -hmm. I feel like that's ubiquitous now. It is common. Yeah. I, I, I think you're right, you know, about that. So I, I think, again, this is sort of like the negative side, you know, of, of, of social media is that in some ways it's, you know, there was this kind of this idea when social media really started developing. I'm really talking about like forums and like discussion groups and that kind of stuff that really started popping out even in the late nineties, uh, before Facebook, before Twitter. So there was this kind of the sense of, right, like social media is going to be, or the internet more, more broadly is going to be this kind of like, communal space, right? It's going to be more democratic. People are going to exchange more views. It's going to result in bringing people closer together. And, you know, there's an element of truth to that, but we can see also that it didn't always work out that way. And in some respects, social media has allowed us to become more siloed uh, to really not engage with ideas that are different from our own, or to the extent that we do, um, it is this sort of sense of like, you know, this person disagrees with my worldview. So why hasn't someone kicked in their teeth yet? You know, in fact, that actually is a quote, um, that has made, gotten some news attention recently. Um, and that came from an adult, by the way, not a teenager. Uh, you know, so there is a sort of sense of, yeah, I mean, 
I won't say that people didn't ever use violent rhetoric in, in interpersonally before social media. They did. You know, there were people always would say, I'm going to kill you, you know, because they got angry with each other or whatever. Um, but it's now almost like a entertainment for one's like cultural group, right? You know, so it's almost like, you know, there's this idea that people are more aggressive online when they're anonymous. And there's some evidence that suggests that's true. But in some spaces, people, or some evidence is suggesting that in some spaces, people actually become more aggressive when they're not anonymous, meaning that they're actually using their aggression towards an outgroup to signal their involvement or their allegiance with an in-group, you know, and that's why you sometimes see, like, you know, particularly, you know, putting it kind of simply here that people on the right may engage in violent rhetoric towards people on the left, but people on the left engage in violent rhetoric towards people on, on the right, or it may not even be that far apart, that, you know, sometimes people that are even slightly different in their opinions may engage in this kind of violent rhetoric towards each other. So there has been this kind of element on social media where sort of like the norms of civility um, have broken down, uh, you know, to, uh, you know, to some degree. And also this kind of sense that, uh, there's no due process, you know, to any of this. And if someone says the wrong thing, that their life must be destroyed, uh, is another element that seems to have come out of, you know, some of the social media, you know, exchanges. It's almost like, you know, a societal death sentence. <laughs> People kind of like declare on each other because they have divergences or views or someone actually does something that's offensive, but it's a one-off. Um, but it offended people enough that, um, you know, they, they, they have no, uh, graciousness or forgiveness for the person. Um, and that's, I think, something that is contributing. It's not, I think, the only thing, uh, but something that is contributing to the difficulties we're having right now, finding unity, finding compromise, uh, finding some degree of shared purpose in, in our culture. Yeah, well, that's the other thing I was going to mention is I feel like there used to be a, a pretty clear delineation between mainstream media culture, which was more or less based around facts, and then internet culture, which is like everyone's calling each other Hitler and spreading conspiracy <laughs> theories. And I mm -hmm. feel like the people who are like my age and younger who grew up on the internet have sort of like grown up thinking it's just normal to call anyone you disagree with Hitler. And now they're starting to get jobs at actual mainstream media publications and just bringing that, um, you know, that, that culture with them. And so it's yeah. making it like making everything seem like the internet, you know? Yeah. Well, I know like, you know, in the last, few months I've, I've kind of like mused over, you know, we're coming towards a voting cycle here and, you know, who knows what will happen in November. But I sometimes think about like, who are like the, the winners and losers of the Trump administration. And I don't know if there are any winners, uh, but uh, you know, one of the, I, I think groups that to, to my surprise, I think to some extent is going to come out having difficulties are, are, is, is journalism, you know, that I, I think, you know, a lot of what you said is exactly correct, you know, that back in like 2016, Trump kind of talked about, you know, fake news and like, you know, main or lamestream media. And I think for the most part, most people kind of thought that was him being hyperbolic as he always is. And, uh, you know, being kind of full of, of, of nonsense. And I, and I, you know, there's a saying, or at least I've, you know, I've, I've said this, I don't know if anybody else has said this, but you know, if, if someone accuses you of something ridiculous, you should try not to give them evidence to support the ridiculous yeah. accusation <laughs> that they're making about you. And I, and I think unfortunately, you know, um, news media, I mean, on both sides, I mean, Fox News is obviously as guilty as this as, you know, say the Washington Post or New York Times are. Uh, but there has been this sort of sense that 
news media has decided to pick sides and the news now reflects a particular worldview, you know, so everything is kind of filtered through a particular worldview and you can pick which one you like. So if you really want this kind of like, you know, far left, I mean, I, I, I can't even believe I'm describing the New York times as being far left, but it seems to be where they're going. And so this, this far left narrative, you know, you can select the New York times or, or something like that. If you want the far right narrative, of course you can select Fox news. Neither are true, you know, necessarily, you know, uh, and that really, I think is going to confuse most people who, you know, there's this term I've seen bandied about recently, the sort of exhausted majority, if you will, but for most people that aren't really on either poll, they're going to come out of this, I think, like not knowing what to trust when it comes to, you know, to, to news media. And I don't know how news media is going to put that genie back in the bottle. I mean, I don't, I don't know how they restore, you know, credibility, uh, you know, going forward uh, from, from this. And that's been a really rapid change, I think, you know, over the, particularly the last four years. So I feel like you're pretty much agreeing with me rather than making the case that the kids are all right. Well, I don't think it's all the the kids, you know, necessarily. But, um, you know, a, a lot of this has been, I think, in, in the works for some time, you know. So um, it's always easy to kind of blame, like, <laughs> the current situation on, on, on the youth of today. And there may be something to this. I mean, of course, you know, Jonathan Haidt and has kind of made this point for a while that, um, you know, universities and academia have been responsible for perhaps not uh, acculturating youth in the sense of like critical thinking and, and sort of civics, you know, and free speech and, and things like that. And now, as you kind of indicated, as, as, as some of these individuals have graduated, they're taking um, their value system that doesn't it doesn't involve things like free speech or due process or whatever else into their careers, um, you know. So I think there's something to that. But but we, in fairness to those graduates, in fairness to those kids today, you know, they were taught by older people, you know. Um, so so some of this I think is 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 a a process that has been going on, you know, easily for a decade or so. And I think that the 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 origins of it stretch back even further, um, you know, than that. So. You know, I, I think, yes, we do see these generational changes in values. Um, younger people in general tend to be more liberal than older people. There tends to be a little bit of a shift over the, over the lifespan. Um, but, uh, but I think that, you know, some of these things that we're seeing, you know, in society today, in journalism and academia have been in the works for some time. And really kind of reflect this like hyperpolarization that I think really can be traced back in some degree, at least to the 90s, uh, if not further back even than that. I also wanted to ask you in the book, uh, How Madness Shaped History, you say that um, you're talking about Steve Jobs and mm -hmm. you say his personality style evokes elements of several personality disorders such as narcissistic, schizotypal and obsessive compulsive without fitting comfortably into any of them. Mm -hmm. So do we need a uh, Steve Jobs personality disorder <laughs> yeah I, I think there's this kind of uh, yeah sure you know I, I love to get a diagnosis in the DSM um, <laughs> but uh, yeah I mean the reality is of course you know any kind of classification system for mental disorders is never going to be perfect you know it's we like to think in terms of categories but people don't tend to fit in the categories you know very well is uh, you know the reality of it it's just these systems make it easier for us to converse uh, to some extent but um, yeah, I mean, there, there does seem to be this sort of personality style, 
that is just like like visionary, you know, uh, style that you can see in, in you know perhaps like Steve Jobs or uh, you know Bezos or Elon Musk or that kind of thing. You know, you know, uh, hyperactive, not in an ADHD sense, but more like they're full of energy, full of vision, have big ideas. A little bit of narcissism, maybe a lot of narcissism, you know, some obsessive compulsiveness, you know, maybe a little bit strange. So schizotypal personality disorder just basically suggests the person has some unusual beliefs, unusual ways of behaving, um, and that sort of stuff. Um, and, you know, with some of these cases like Steve Jobs, it can, when it, when it works, it can be brilliant, you know, I mean, you know, so Steve Jobs was absolutely, you know, a visionary. He was, he was fascinating. But of course, the reality is that most individuals with that personality style crash and burn. You know, so, uh, you know, we only really pay attention to the ones that are amazingly successful. We don't always see the visionaries who came up with silly ideas uh, or just burned out, um, you know, one way or another. I mean, another example, I, I can't remember her name off the top of my head, but it was the uh, uh, the woman who developed uh, or claimed to have developed a blood yeah. test. Elizabeth uh, yes. Yes, yeah, thank you. Who kind of, what kind of would fit into that category as well. And of course, you know, she crashed and burned because she actually never really did develop, uh, a working, um, blood test as she had claimed. Um, you know, so I think probably more people with that personality style fit into the Elizabeth Holmes sort of, you know, outcome. Maybe not quite as bad as, as that. And, and fewer of them really fit into the Steve Jobs or Jeff Bezos, um, you know, categories. Um, but, but yeah, I mean, there is a sort of a distinct style. I mean, you know, uh, I don't know a lot about Elon Musk. I admire him because he come up, came up with a flamethrower that I could buy someday. <laughs> right? So, so desire to, and I think that's pretty cool. Um, but, uh, you know, so I don't know much about his personality, but I, I, just, I just sort of think about his, the way he lives. And I'm like, oh my God, I would be so tired. I would, you know, I need an afternoon nap, you know, like every day. And I, I would just never be able to live the life. That he does. And that's not a knock against him. That's not a criticism of him. If anything, it's a criticism of me. Uh, but it takes a special kind of personality, you know, a special kind of person to live that kind of life. And, and when they're successful, they can be amazingly successful. And when they're not successful, they can be amazingly not successful. Um, you know, so we have to keep that in mind sometimes while we sort of glorify that particular personality style. Well, you know, I, I read um, the biography of Elon Musk, and I think it's a similar sort of thing to Steve Jobs, where he's, um, you know, he's really acting like a jerk. You know, he's he's pushing people past their <laughs> limits, and he's um, sort of betraying people who have shown him nothing but loyalty and um, making unreasonable, constantly making unreasonable demands. But then you see, as you read the book, that if he were nicer, he wouldn't accomplish anything, right? And Correct. so it's it's kind of a weird thing where it's like. You know, we, we don't want people to have personality disorders. We don't want them to mistreat other people. But there's just certain situations where you need someone to be a jerk, it seems, to accomplish yeah. great things. And if we um, sort of weed that out of the population in whatever way, are we losing a lot of potential um, that yeah. we might otherwise have? Oh, absolutely. I mean, there, there's this kind of idea if you talk about, you know, uh, psychopathy, for instance. And by the way, I'm not saying that, you know, Elon Musk is a psychopath. Um, but if you kind of look at like, you know, antisocial personality disorder, which is the same thing as psychopathy, you know, that, you know, certainly some of these individuals become criminals and that's bad. We don't want that. But, but others of them find places in society 
where they fit very well. And actually we kind of want them, you know, in, in those roles. And, you know, I've done some work, for instance, with uh, military veterans and, uh, and be very, very clear, the vast majority of military veterans are not psychopaths. Um, but, uh, you know, I worked with some who, uh, were voluntary frontline combat troops. You know, they actually volunteered, you know, to go into combat. And, and some of these soldiers would talk about that they enjoyed it. You know, that it was a thrill. It was an adrenaline rush. They really, they, they liked it. It was actually kind of hard for them to fit back into society because it was dull. Um, you know, and, uh, you know, I, I respect that to some extent. I mean, you know, in the sense that those are the guys or, or women that we want in frontline combat. You know, you know, so you don't want me. I'm going to be hiding behind a rock all the time. <laughs> you know, you want these people that are able to function very well in, in those roles, you know, and, these aren't bad people, you know, they're patriotic, they want to do something for their country, it's just that they fit well in this particular role that most of us, you know, would not. You know, would you want this person to be your social worker? Probably not. You know, do you want them in a role where they can use their unique traits to benefit our society? You know, absolutely, you know. Um, so, and I think that's the same sort of thing that if you look at, you know, certain types of career paths, uh, most of us just are not going to fit into those things. We'd be miserable. I would probably be miserable with Elon Musk's life, you know. Um, he looks like he's having a lot of fun, <laughs> you know. So, <laughs> you know, uh, he shot a, you know, a car into space. You know, that is kind of cool, you know. Um, you know, so I respect that. I wouldn't want to live his life, but I respect that he is doing what he's doing and is doing that successfully. Um, you know, it would be nice if he didn't, you know, pick on people or bully them. Uh, that sort of stuff. But sometimes it is perhaps difficult to separate the negative from the positive. Um, and that really can be kind of a challenge. I mean, Steve Jobs was the same way, you know, that he mistreated a lot of people in the course of his life, but he also really revolutionized multiple technology industries. And, you know, is that a net gain or a net loss for society? I think that, you know, is something that is hard to answer. It's a bit subjective. What is sort of the current state of people blaming video games for things? Should gamers kind of feel like they've won the war or are there things that still we still need to be manning the barricades on? Uh, I think things are better. Yeah. So you're looking over the last 15 years. Um, definitely things are different than they were in 2005. I mean, I think, I think 2005 was about the height of video game blaming, yeah, if, if you will. And things have slowly gotten better uh, since then. I think people are tired of it. Well, And, of course, there's also this issue with moral panics that you moral panics, of course, cater to an audience, and then eventually that audience dies, right? You know, um, and, and that's what really makes it more – that's why nobody thinks about, like, Ozzy Osbourne anymore. You know, nobody cares about Ozzy Osbourne causing suicide, although he was sued, you know, for exactly that back in the early 90s, if I remember correctly. Um, you know, but now we're worried about 13 reasons why, you know, so same kind of thing, you know, uh, repeated. Um, but that's what, what kind of happens is the, the audience will basically die. So I, I think with, with, you know, the video game violence slash mass shooting thing, um, one thing that seems to have happened is for some reason or another, it seems to become almost entirely a right wing issue. So in, in the last couple of cases, like the Marjorie, Marjorie Stoneman uh, Douglas shooting in 2017, if I remember correctly. Uh, I might have the year off there. Uh, but, uh, you know, the, the President Trump raised this issue of, of video games, and then everybody on the left, you know, kind of fell into the other boat. 
which I think says a lot about modern politics today. But, um, you know, so if for whatever reason the right wing of politics seems to have made it their issue, uh, which turned it off to half the population. So I, I think we've at least got half the population doesn't worry about this anymore. I, it may still come up with shootings that are perpetrated by young males, I think with less and less energy each time. Um, you know, I don't want to be too Pollyannish about it and say that we'll never hear from it again. I think we'll probably still occasionally hear people talk about violence in video games. But I think that the enthusiasm behind it has definitely declined um, significantly. I think now people are moving over to other things, uh, certainly the social media, smartphones, um, but also, you know, that still is mo- more coming from conservatives, you know, with, with the left, and particularly with the last few weeks, you know, I, I've seen some similar stuff about, you know, like cop themed shows, uh, all the way up to including Paw Patrol, which is kind of interesting, you know, so I'm not making that up, uh, you know, so it, it, we, we may see people, you know, sort of identify fictional media of one sort or another that appears to oppose a particular moral agenda. Um, and, and I think we'll just continue seeing that cycle that, you know, people will pick up on new things that they worry about that will get some energy for a little while. Hopefully some research, hopefully some pre-registered research will come out that will sort of examine these issues. Um, and then we'll see what the data says. You know, it's always possible. Maybe one of these things really does have some sort of negative effect. I don't want to rule that out as a possibility. You know, so far, these kind of moral panics have batted pretty much zero. Um, so the, the likelihood is in most of these cases, it won't turn out to be at least as big a deal as people were worried about. But, um, but yeah, this seems to be kind of the, the cycle is that, you know, we can look back at past moral panics and laugh at them because they seem so ridiculous, but it's very difficult for us for some reason to learn from history in that sense and apply that to today's media and avoid blaming fictional media for what might be perfectly legitimate social concerns, um, you know, that we have, but, uh, we'll see. Maybe, maybe the half-life of these things will become shorter, uh, as people get a little bit more aware. Yeah. All right. Well, we're pretty much out of time. I think that's a good note to end on. Do you have any, uh, just final thoughts or any other projects you want to let people know about? Yeah, I mean, you know, if people want to, you know, uh, read some of my short stories, uh, they can go to my website, which is ChristopherJFerguson.com. I wasn't too imaginative uh, hmm. about that. Uh, and there are links to my books and stuff there. I mean, I'm still working, of course, on a lot of research on uh, media effects. You know, I think we're kind of coming towards the, I don't know how many more studies of violent video games we need. I think we, I think we kind of got it, uh, at this point. But, uh, obviously as new concerns pop up, I've done a little bit of work with 13 Reasons Why, you know, coming from some of the panics about 13 Reasons Why, um, you know, doing a little bit with, uh, Dungeons and Dragons more recently and, um, and a few other things as well. So, you know, it's really a, I kind of keep my head down to the ground to try to hear the rumbles of what people are concerned about. And, uh, I think those are always kind of interesting, uh, to, to test. I mean, like I said, occasionally one will pop up. There actually is something to it. Like advertising effects actually do seem to have some impact, but, um, in most of these situations, it actually is quite difficult to find evidence for people's fears of, uh, of media effects. All right, cool. Yes. We're going to wrap things up there. So we've been speaking with Christopher J. Ferguson about his books, Moral Combat and How Madness Shaped History. So, Chris, thank you so much for joining us. It was really awesome being on. Thank you. And that was our interview.
So big thanks again to Christopher J. Ferguson for joining us on the show. And remember that Geek's Guide to the Galaxy is made possible thanks to support from listeners like you. So if you enjoy the show and want it to continue, please sign up to give us a dollar or two per episode over at patreon.com geeks. And if you'd rather make a one-time contribution, you can do that via check or PayPal over at geeksguideshow.com crowdfunding. So big thanks again to everyone who's contributed. We really appreciate it. All right, so that was our show. So thanks everyone for listening, and we'll see you next time. The Geek's Guide to the Galaxy is a production of Wired.com. For more information about the show, visit geeksguideshow.com. To learn more about your host, visit davidbarkertley.com. Music and voiceover produced by yours truly, Jack Kincaid. If you enjoyed this program, tell your friends. If you didn't enjoy it, tell no one. Thank you for listening.